This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Radio Show, which can be heard on Community Radio 3CR in Melbourne and Skid Row in Sydney. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut Babette. We'd like to pay our respects to elders past and present and pay tribute to the decades-long legacy of Aboriginal fights for land rights and against the destructive mining projects that are fueling climate change. In particular, we acknowledge the Wangan and Jagalingu cultural custodians and their ongoing opposition to coal mining on their lands in central Queensland and to the Gomorrah traditional custodians continuing opposition to coal and gas on their land in New South Wales. It is vital at this late stage in history that we all learn to care for country. It will always be Aboriginal land and now is our time to all stand up for and protect it. This is Stephen Pigram from up Broomway, Yauru country, and it's great to be down in Melbourne and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Been here for a long time. Today's show looks at what's happening in Antarctica with Sir David King and in Libya with Nissa Beck in Tripoli. We also go to the United Nations with Antonio Gutierrez and his first ever Climate Ambition Summit. And lastly, to the really big picture of system change with the venerable Noam Chomsky. So much is happening if you're focused on climate action and we could only give you a patchwork impression. This week in Melbourne, the Environment Minister Tanya Plibersek is being taken to court over coal mine approvals. We'll cover this more next week. But on day one, the minister is saying, in effect, that if these two projects don't go ahead, other companies will dig up and sell an equivalent amount of coal anyway. More next week, but you can phone or write to Tanya Plibersek as a voter. Put the pressure on her, because surely she can't get away with that. It's the Living Wonders case, and she is being taken to court by the Environment Council of Central Queensland. We interviewed their team last year, and you can find the podcast about that at 3CR, Living Wonders. The two mines in question are in New South Wales. They're really huge listeners, really, in Melbourne, I don't think... You can imagine, they're like the Grand Canyon, these mines. I've seen one of them, and truly, they want to extend them. The first one is called, um, it's at the Whitehaven coal mine at Narrabri, and it wants to extend until 2044. The second one is Match Energy at Muswellbrook. It wants to go on digging up Mount Pleasant until 2048. So more about that next week. But if you're in Melbourne, it's at the federal court, and I think it will be most interesting to follow. 
As we go to air, the Climate Ambition Summit will be happening. I don't know if Australia will be there, as it's only for countries keen to lift their ambition. I will include small quotations from Antonio Gutierrez at the United Nations press conference during this show. But to judge for yourself what Australia's climate ambition is, here is our Minister for the Environment in Parliament one week ago. When she was asked why she keeps approving new coal and gas projects, here is Tanya Plibersek. Call to the Honourable Member for Brisbane. Thank you, Speaker. My question is to the Environment Minister. A new report by the UN has concluded that meeting the goals of the Paris Climate Agreement to limit warming to 1.5 degrees will require phasing out all fossil fuels. So why have you given approval to several coal projects since becoming Minister? Thank you. Um, thank you, Mr Speaker. And I think I've had pretty much the same question each week um, recently. And perhaps... Um, Perhaps if I go into some of the details about how these decisions are made, I've been very clear with the Parliament about our government's determination to achieve net zero in Australia. I've made it very clear the measures that we're taking, 82% renewable energy, a target of 82% renewable energy, the fact that we are committed to net zero, we've got a trajectory to net zero, but on the issue of approvals, I think it's really um, very important to say this. The Greens political party knows that emissions from coal and gas projects are covered by the Climate Minister's safeguard mechanism to make sure that all big polluters reduce their pollution. Order. Now, the reason that the Greens political party should know about the safeguard mechanism is that they spent weeks negotiating it with the Climate Change Minister, the Climate and Energy Minister. They negotiated the safeguard mechanism. They voted for it. They've defended it. They say they believe in the safeguard mechanism as a way of getting Australia to net zero. And yet, having negotiated it, defended it and voted for it, they now think that the Climate Minister should do something different to what the um, Environment Minister does. So you have... Two separate, two separate approval mechanisms, one on climate uh, and energy and one on environment. It simply makes no sense. The Greens political party voted for a law to get emissions down. It's the safeguard mechanism. All new projects are assessed against that safeguard mechanism. That's what you agreed to. That's what you voted for. That's what we're doing. That's what we'll keep doing because we're committed to getting to net zero. And I am very worried where the world stands on climate. Countries are far off track in meeting climate promises and commitments. I see a lack of ambition, a lack of trust, a lack of support, a lack of cooperation, and an abundance of problems around clarity and credibility. The climate agenda is being undermined. At a time when we should be accelerating action, there is backtracking. At a time when we should be filling gaps, these gaps are growing. And meanwhile, the human rights of climate activists are being trampled. The most vulnerable, 
are suffering the most. Current policies are taking the world to a 2.8 degree temperature rise by the end of the century. That spells catastrophe, yet the collective response remains pitiful. We are hurtling towards disaster, eyes wide open, with far too many willing it all on uh, wishful thinking and proven technologies and silver bullet solutions. It's time to wake up and step up. Three days after the tragic news of floods in Libya was being relayed around the world, Democracy Now! leapt immediately to a local climate activist. None of the Australian media I know can make that leap or immediately see the climate connection. So I am bringing you Amy Goodman's interview with Nissa Beck in Tripoli. Bloomberg noted that Libya's oil exports have continued unaffected. Well, in Libya, at least 6,000 are feared dead. Thousands more remain missing after a catastrophic flood in the eastern city of Derna. Torrential rains from Storm Daniel caused two dams to burst, wiping out whole sections of the city. Water reached 10 feet high in parts of the city. The United Nations has called the flood a, quote, calamity of epic proportions. Rescue operations have had difficulty reaching Derna because there's only one unobstructed road into the city. In front of Derna's hospital, people are searching for their loved ones amidst piles of dead bodies lined up on the ground. This is the hospital's manager, Mohamed Akabisi. The number of dead in this particular section is 1,700 deaths so far. We counted them as they were lying in the hallways. Whoever is identified is then buried. There are some who have not been identified. So we started photographing them and assigning numbers to them, then burying them as well. On the other side, they buried 500 people. Things are very bad. The hospital is dilapidated. Mohamed Kamati, who lives in Derna, said many people were sleeping when the dams failed. Then we heard that the dam had burst and the water had flooded the area. People were asleep and no one was ready. But this is what happens. What can we do? For me, my house is next to the valley, opposite the Al-Shahaba Mosque. The whole family lives next to each other. We're all neighbors. We lost 30 people so far, 30 members of the same family. We haven't found anyone. Much of Libya's infrastructure has crumbled since 2011, when the Obama administration and NATO backed an uprising against the longtime leader Muammar Gaddafi, setting off years of war and political upheaval. Derna's mayor said the city's dams have not been maintained in over 20 years. The flood was caused by a rare hurricane-like cyclone in the Mediterranean known as a Medicane. It's the same storm that brought unprecedented flooding to Greece, Turkey and Bulgaria last week. The floods come just a week before a major summit on the climate crisis at the United Nations here in New York. Greenpeace International said, quote, governments must act now to end fossil fuels that are plunging us deeper into climate disaster every day. We go now to Libya, to the city of Tripoli, where we're joined by the youth climate activist Nissa Beck. Thanks so much for being with us. I know that Tripoli itself was not physically affected by uh, this catastrophe in Derna. But if you can describe what you understand has happened there. I mean, we're talking about 6,000, perhaps 10,000 people dead at this point, Nissa. Condolences. Yes. Thank you so much. 
Um, first of all, allow me just to clarify that although uh, Tripoli itself is not affected by this very specific event, it does not mean that the west uh, part of Libya is usually not affected by uh, heavy rainfalls or even um, other smaller um, storms. Uh, in fact, just last week, the city of Zlitan, which uh, is located in the western part of Libya, drowned completely. It was flooded completely just because uh, um, of six hours of rain. And uh, the whole flooding thing is not news to us. We've been struggling with this for years because, as you mentioned, Libya is struggling with poor infrastructure. And it's been like that for years beyond actually the, the 2011 revolution, uh, even at time, uh, even during the times of Gaddafi. Most of the well-constructed uh, buildings, uh, we had them since the time of the Italian colonization. It was constructed by the Italian government over 100 years ago. Those remain until today. However, most of the, uh, the structures that were built uh, during the 60s, it's, it's, it's usually um, easily affected by rain or even simple weather changes. As for what happened in, in Derna, it was actually expected. I've expected this to happen for the longest. You know, as a climate activist, I'm uh, I'm always pursuing uh, government officials. I'm always doing my best to communicate whatever information that I have. Um, this is not the first time that Derna goes through this. It went through it uh, twice before in the past decade. It went through it in the 40s and again in the 80s. And just two years ago, uh, Mr. Um, Abdelaziz Ashour, who is a civil engineer, published a paper with the University of Sabha uh, where he warned that both of the dams are very fragile and he expected that they will be falling apart very soon. He also, um, he also mentioned that we need to have a lot of tree planting in the area in order to combat the desertification because all of the sand in the area or like the dry area will only make the flooding uh, like much worse. So it's something that we have expected. Um, in fact, ever since uh, this catastrophe happened, uh, they talked about it a lot in the news from many different aspects, but not climate aspects. They did not mention anything about climate change and in what ways the, uh, the government is at fault at what happened. Because as we mentioned before, this is, uh, it was, Derna is like the fourth stop of the Daniel storm. Okay. However, it's the one that is most affected by it. So just to give you a bit of a background on the climate crisis here in Libya, uh, Libya did sign the climate change framework back in 2015 with the UN, and they did ratify the Paris Agreement back in 2021. However, uh, although the government been active at COPs, they did not submit any of the necessary national uh, determined uh, contribution or the national adaptation plans. So these documents supposed to include their risk reduction strategies. So in case something such as this happened, what will what will they be doing? Um, so the thing is, uh, most of the other countries already declared emergencies and they did evacuations in advance. Libya did not. As they've seen the storm coming our way, and we had, uh, we knew that the storm was coming our way 
uh, on its way to the Libyan coast, the government did not announce um, uh, emergency. They did not have any evacuation. Not to mention, it wasn't until yesterday when the president came out and he mentioned and, and he said that, please stop sending medicine and food. We don't actually need this type of aid. What we need is uh, rescue teams, uh, search teams, as well as aid flights. So we're talking about a country that does not even have an aid flight. Uh, so when all the roads collapsed, they were not able to actually reach the people. So all of the aid that is being sent by the other countries is not even making it to the to the people. So every minute passed without an aid flight or helicopters meant tens and thousands of other people dying. So. It took them two days to ask for that. And then they claimed on TV that, oh, yeah, we have a strategy and we're working on it right now. But obviously, they did not have a strategy. They do not have a plan. So this just well, shows uh, you that, yeah. Nisa, Beck, I wanted to ask you, what has been the role of the, the Ministry of Environmental Affairs in, in uh, and also Given the fact that uh, for the for the past ten years, ever since the uh, the killing of Gaddafi, Libya has been has had to deal with competing uh, or conflicting governments, so two governments within the same country. Yes, that did have an effect, logistical effect. So, um, for example, even the aid that um, Egypt is offering, they're not actually communicating with the government that is acknowledged by the international community. They are in touch with General Haftar in the East, which is the government that is not recognized by the international community, which means that whatever agreement is taking place as we speak right now, the actual president of the country have no idea what is going on. So in that sense, yes, it's quite an issue logistically. but. Um, like like I said before, it's it's mainly a, a climate and environmental issue because, like I said, a huge part of uh, climate or our strategy to combat climate or natural disasters is about the risk reduction strategies that's supposed to be submitted during COPs, but they're not submitting anything. As for the role of the Environmental uh, Affairs Ministry, they're supposed to be playing the biggest role in this, but they're not playing any role at all. But to be uh, completely honest, I have a source that told me that the Minister of Environmental Affairs has been submitting a lot of projects and a lot of proposals to uh, President Abdel Hamid Dbeiba. However, he is the one who is rejecting all of those proposals. He just keeps postponing them. And therefore, uh, the, the Ministry of Environmental Affairs is not receiving any funding. And and according to the employees of the uh, of the ministry, they haven't received their paychecks for over two years. So they are working without getting paid, and it's been like that for over two years. And and what about the the reality that as uh, as Libya confronts uh, the increasing dangers of the climate? crisis, it still depends largely as a nation for its, uh, uh, its foreign income on, uh, the, uh, on oil and gas. Yes, and we have uh, we have spoken about that. You know, we've spoken a lot about that, and they're still signing deals with uh, countries such as Italy for the next twenty years and the next thirty years. So they don't seem to take the whole climate issue seriously. And in fact, if you've spoken to any of the decision makers uh, regarding this, they're like, "Yeah, yeah, we understand, but we don't have to worry about that now."
That's usually their reply. And I'm hoping that this tragedy could be the turning point for all of this and for them to actually take the climate crisis more seriously. Uh, Nisa, rich countries agreed to establish a loss and damage fund at the close of last year's UN Climate yeah. Summit in Egypt, um, dealing specifically with the global south, um, the worst effects of the climate catastrophe. The fund was a major breakthrough for global south countries, which have been demanding a similar mechanism for the last 30 years, um, but faced opposition from the United States and other large polluting nations. What are your demands of wealthier nations? To be completely honest, yes, the main issue or the root of the issue goes back to the polluting countries, uh, such as the United States. But in this very specific situation, I cannot really um, say that it is their responsibility to fix what happened. Because like I mentioned earlier, it's obviously the, our government's fault. And the problem with this fund that it's not going to bring the lives that we lost back. It is something that comes later on, you know, when it's time to actually reconstruct Derna. Um, a lot of these countries will be putting, you know, some funds in order to help us reconstruct it. But at what cost? I mean, at that point, we've already lost so many people, and we don't know how many other people we're going to lose in the upcoming few years if we don't actually deal with the problem more seriously. So right now, I cannot think of like, oh, it's uh, it's because of the U.S. It's because of China. You know, I don't have that kind of mindset right now. It's because of my own government. In the future, however, I really need all states, whether they're from the global south or the global north, to take this fund seriously. And most importantly, take COP seriously. Take their NDCs and NAPs submissions more seriously. They've seen what happens when you don't take it seriously. You need a risk reduction strategy. You need to, you know, uh, put forward a plan uh, on like, what are we going to do in case this happened? You know, Libya has a very low level of precipitation. We don't even have a lot of rainfall. And they're like, flooding? What are the chances of us, you know, going through a flooding? Where? There you go. So well, that's what I'm expecting. Yeah. Well, Nisa, I want to thank you so much for being with us. We'll continue what's ha to follow what's happening in Libya. Nisa Beck is a youth climate activist joining us from Tripoli, Libya. It's time to rebuild trust based on climate justice. It's time to accelerate the just transition to a green economy. Limiting the rise in global temperature to 1.5 degrees Celsius is still possible. We must consider this as a moment of hope. But it will require carbon emissions to be cut by 45 percent by 2030. To help get us there, I have proposed the Climate Solidarity Pact, in which all big emitters would make extra efforts to cut emissions and wealthier countries supporting emerging economies to do so. And I have put forward an acceleration agenda to supercharge these efforts. I urge governments to make it happen by eating fast forward on their net zero deadlines so that developed countries can meet to reach net zero as close as possible to 2040 and emerging economies as close as possible to 2050. And developed countries must abide by their commitments on finance, adaptation and loss and damage. 
And they might also push multilateral development banks to adapt their business models, skill sets, and approaches to risk in order to leverage far more private finance at reasonable cost to developing countries to allow for a massive increase in investment in renewables. That investment is the only way to achieve global energy security independent of the present unpredictable market fluctuations. Well, I'm John Grimes from the Smart Energy Council. I'm here to say that Community Radio, 3CR, what an awesome role you play in getting the truth out to people who need to know at a counterpoint to the mainstream media. Keep up the great work. Antarctica had a heat dome over it in 2022. I wonder, did you even know that? I didn't. There are dynamic developments in Antarctica, and I'm proud that 3CR hosts Radio EcoShock because its uh, producer, Alex Smith in Canada, can bring you the most sensational news that never makes it to the headlines here. And on top of that, his guests are often Australian scientists. I'm assuming you listened to EcoShock Radio on September the 17th, and it's about that heat dome. So to build on that, I'm bringing you an item from Climate Gen by kind permission of Nick Breeze. He talks to Sir David King about Antarctica. In this Climate Gen episode, I speak with former UK chief scientists and chair of the Climate Crisis Advisory Group, Sir David King. Sir David explains what is going on with the Antarctic sea ice and how this connects to the wider global climate system. We also discuss the differences between Arctic and Antarctic sea ice and how the North Pole is at risk of releasing vast quantities of methane that could send global temperatures soaring. All of this inevitably leads to the question of action to reduce risk and steer humanity back onto a survivable pathway. Sir David highlights the dangers of what we are all being offered by the incoming COP28 presidency. David, it's good to see you again. Thank you very much for taking the time. I just wanted to start by asking you about the data coming out of Antarctica regarding the sea ice lows, because a lot of people are very worried. Can you talk about how you interpret what you're seeing? The first thing is that the data shows that the sea ice around Antarctica appears to be suddenly retreating. And I'm just talking about this year and the last few months of last year. Uh, the, the sea ice has retreated about 1.9 million square kilometers compared with the norm at this time of the year. So I'm talking about the end of May, when the figure would normally be 9 million square kilometers, and it's now down to 7.2 million square kilometers. That's uh, the biggest drop ever observed. And it means that during the summer months, when it's normally 3 million square kilometers, it is now down to less than one or just over one. So it's a, it's a very severe signal that in the summer months, there will be much less sea ice protecting the ice on land around Antarctica. Okay. And it's this buttressing effect where the sea ice almost acts as a blocker to stop those land ice sheets sliding into the sea. Can you just give a quick overview of how that's different to, the, to how we view sea ice in the Arctic? 
Of course, the North Pole is an ocean surrounded by land. The South Pole is land surrounded by ocean. That's the most important difference. So what we're seeing in the North Pole region is that the ice has retreated from the sea around the North Pole. And what this means is that the warm sea is then raising the temperature of the land mass around. And we're seeing all sorts of absolutely damaging effects in terms of the whole world. So in the North Pole region, we have rising sea levels. When all the ice on Greenland melts, sea levels will have risen by about seven meters. And I'm talking about the global average sea level rise. Obviously, the map of the world has changed dramatically by that. And equally, the land mass is heated up and we're already seeing explosive release of methane from the permafrost. Let's go back to the Antarctic. In the Antarctic, because the oceans are warming up and are warming up rather quickly now, we see that warm water can penetrate between the ice on land, Antarctica is this vast continent, it's penetrating between the land and the ice and creating a slippery layer, which means that the danger is that we get very large chunks of ice coming off the landmass and entering the ocean. So the ice around the South Pole region, around the Antarctica, protects the water around that region in terms of its temperature, so it keeps the temperature cooler. That's the buffer effect you've just referred to. When you look around the world at the moment and you see things like this new El Nino developing straight off the back of the La Nina, and you see in extreme situations like the Atlantic being above its normal temperatures and so on, and the Arctic heating away. Is it conceivable, do you think? I know you've got to wait and see, but is it conceivable that we that we could be sort of crossing some sort of threshold? It seems that everything's going up a notch. We're always slightly notching up. Is it too early to make those kinds of... I'm afraid it's not too early. So, for example, if we... Let's go back up towards the North Pole region where things are happening much more quickly. We know that we have this wind blowing anti-clockwise around the North Pole region, which keeps cold air in the North Pole region and warm air away from it. And it, that means it keeps us warmer than we would otherwise be. We know that that roughly circular wind is now massively distorted. And it's distorted because if you create warm atmospheric air above this exposed Arctic sea during the polar summer, that warm air is driving the cold air further down. And as you drive the cold air further down in one place, warm air comes up in another. And this is really disturbing the global weather systems dramatically already. All of these extreme, extreme weather events we've been observing, you've just mentioned what's happening in New York today. But in 2021, the uh, weather extremes on the West Coast were simply amazing. So, uh, and when I say that, I mean five to 10 degrees centigrade above the previous warmest ever observed on record by human beings in that part of the world. 
So I think it is, I'm afraid, a sign of the times. If we're not actually tackling the root cause, which we don't seem to be, we're going into you know another year of extremely high emissions. How can we honestly look at interventions if we're not actually prepared to, to reduce our emissions and give up fossil fuels? You are absolutely right. We are still moving in the wrong direction globally, even after that wonderful agreement in 2015 that we were all going to do everything we could to stay below 1.5 degrees above the pre-industrial level. It's now clear that with this El Nino event that you have just referred to, which is a Pacific Ocean event, with that event coming on so quickly after the La Nina, we know that the climate is going to be suddenly warmer around much of the world. And so all of these effects that we've been seeing over the last four or five years, these extreme, extreme weather events, uh, can only get worse. And I think it is awful to say that emissions in terms of billions of tons of greenhouse gases we're putting into the atmosphere every year are still going up quickly. The carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere going up now at two parts per million per annum. And two parts per million per annum is higher than ever before. So we're, we're not managing this. If we don't bring down from, we're now well in excess of 40 billion tons of greenhouse gases going into the atmosphere every year, unless we can bring that down to 10% of that figure within 20 years, let's say, it's very difficult to see how we create a manageable future for humanity. You mentioned the Paris Agreement, and in a way, that was the year when everyone rejoiced that the world leaders were getting their act together and were going to do something about this, enact the policy that would make structural change. And yet, a year later, Trump was elected and things went sideways and so on and so forth. And now we see protesters quite prepared to be put in jail, really making a noise. There's like a sort of desperation in the uh, action. Are we at a point now where people are waking up to what's really happening, and yet the policymakers are entrenched in a sort of last century view, if you like? We're not ready to snap into this action to get rid of our emissions. And, and the word I think you used previously was agile, about this need to be agile in our processes. And we, we seem to lack that agility. Yeah. We lack the agility. We have become bogged down in a dramatically destructive mode of operation. I mean, I, I think the United Nations has still got to be the critical pathway forward. That's the only body that represents all nations. But if you have a negotiating process in which any country can send as many official negotiators as they like into those annual negotiations, and the average is now 20 per country, that means 4,000 negotiators meeting for two weeks. How do you negotiate in that sort of atmosphere? When I was leading from the Foreign Office, the British side of the negotiations, I had explained to the heads of governments that I was working for that we need to have bilateral action. And that's why I visited 96 countries on official visits in the run-up to Paris. 
those bilateral negotiations were, for me, the only way of breaking this logjam. Now, the problem is that we are back into the logjam and all of the promises made in Paris, all of the promises, I mean, there are very few countries that are delivering, have not been adhered to. I was talking to Salim al-Haq yesterday from Bangladesh and Salim was saying, all of you should come to Bangladesh. You cannot speak to anyone over the age of 12 who won't tell you what the challenges of climate change are. Because in Bangladesh, it's not tomorrow's event. They are losing acreage by the year. And really, if you take all of what we've just said and you pitch forward to COP28, which is controversially being hosted by the UAE's head of their national oil company. What are your thoughts on those ties and what appears to be a dampening down of ambition to phase out fossil fuels in those terms, as opposed to reducing emissions through carbon capture and storage? This, of course, is the big worry about COP28. Simply having it in the Middle East, the biggest oil producing area in the world, it was already a bit of a red flag. And then to have Sultan Al-Jabbar, the man you're referring to, run the organization. I've met him. He's charming. He's a lovely guy. You wouldn't mind having an evening in the pub with him. But he believes we will consume more and more oil and gas going forward in time, we globally, and we will capture all of the carbon dioxide and so we can manage to get to net zero by 2050. So there's a person who's in the presidency who is the nightmare scenario person, right? Is that scenario that I've just painted that they'll say, ah, good, get on with it, you guys. More money for the scientists and technologists, and we'll keep producing the oil to pay for it. Well, thank you very much. It's been great to speak to you. I think we've covered all the bases. And uh, can I say thank you, Nick? I always enjoy talking to you. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. And in every country, without exception, civil society voices must be heard. They must be at the table helping to shape policy and on the ground helping to deliver change. All of this action must be global, it must be immediate, and it must start with the polluted heart of the climate crisis, the fossil fuel industry. Let's face facts. The problem is not simply fossil fuel emissions. It's fossil fuels, period. The solution is clear. The world must phase out fossil fuels in a just and equitable way, moving to leave oil, coal, and gas in the ground 
where they belong, and massively boosting renewable investment in a just transition treaty. How do we get there? Our acceleration agenda calls on governments to commit to no new coal, complete phasing out coal by 2030 in OECD countries and 2040 elsewhere. And all international coal funding, both public and private, stopping the expansion of existing oil and gas reserves and supporting the just transition of the impacted developing countries. Hello, I'm Rory McLeod. I live in Scotland and I love radio. I can do the washing up, I could be in the garden, I could be in the car driving. Well, I'm listening to 3CR, Radical Radio, Subscription Radio, Community Radio, on 8.55am. We do stream at 3cr.org.au. So you can become a member and donate money. And lastly, the venerable Noam Chomsky takes the big picture view in a talk with Drew Ojajay from Breach Media. He gave me permission to broadcast and I'm very impressed by his work. So Breach Media Canada is somewhere you might also like to go. I have wanted to play this talk to you ever since my series on system change, not climate change. So here's Noam Chomsky. Well, the central area is workers' control of production. In the budget that was released yesterday, Canada announced billions more for military aid to Ukraine, but it also made a very strong gesture of placing its faith in the private sector to get us out of the climate crisis. But in recent interviews, you've talked about the American government's willingness to risk nuclear war by escalating in Ukraine. In similar terms, I think, to the sort of lack of meaningful action on climate change, and the, and the common thread seems to me to be that elites are driving us toward global disaster. So I guess my question is, what do you think accounts for this collective inability to step away from the edge of the cliff, as it were? You know, is there some kind of death drive simple. among global elites? It's very simple. A word that we're not allowed to think about it's called capitalism. Suppose you're the CEO of uh, ExxonMobil or J.P. Morgan Chase, which is funding fossil fuels, you know perfectly well that you're destroying the life of your grandchildren. It's not a secret. They understand that perfectly well. And you ask them, why are you doing it? They have a pretty good answer. They say, look, if I don't do it, I'll be kicked out because those are the rules of the game. Rules of the game are you maximize profit or you're kicked out. So if I don't do it, I'll be kicked out. I'll be replaced by some other guy who's not as nice a guy as I am. I at least care, sort of care about these things a little bit. So maybe I can slightly mitigate it. That next guy who's coming on is just going to make it worse. I'll continue to produce fossil fuels. Notice that's a logical argument. There's no flaw in it. It's a rational argument. And it goes back to the insanity of the institutions. If you have a society based, run by institutions, which are driven by the need, just by the rules of the game, it's called the rules-based order, driven by the rules to maximize profit, whatever the consequences, it's a suicide pact. What do you see as the pathways that people can take to actually 
make tangible gains that will last a longer amount of time in the face of these institutions, because the context being like, sure, we can make little reforms here and there, but they seem to be rolled back. So what do you see as the pathway to, to making lasting gains? Well, remember that there are many varieties of capitalism, like the period of the 50s and the 60s is quite different from the period of the 80s until today. That was what was called regimented capitalism. Financial institutions were under control. The Treasury Department controlled them. No financial speculation, no crises, no crashes, some degree of social services and so on. What was followed, the so-called neoliberal period, basically Reagan and Thatcher up to the present, is a particular version of savage capitalism. Class war unrestrained. It's quite different. So I want to bring it back to this idea of the cooperative commonwealth. I get the sense that you've had a, in your life a lot of different experiences with cooperative structures. I'm just curious to hear your reflections on those attempts at creating creating genuine micro examples of socialism. In Canada, Canada has pretty broad, it's kind of limited in its depth, but a pretty broadly functioning cooperative movements in uh, commerce, retail, and so on. Those are the basis for cooperative movements. They can expand and expand the production. If you look at the old Rust Belt in the United States, it looks devastated, but a lot of places, small worker-owned enterprises are beginning to crop up. They're being organized. There's quite a lot of them, in fact, integrating into the more service-oriented economy. Well, that's uh, the, actually there's an organized movements behind that. The New America Project or something like that. Carl Pervitz is doing very good work. It's difficult, of course. Class war, it's not easy. And there's plenty of forces on the other side. If you allow them to win the war without confrontation, okay, they win. If the mass of the population becomes organized and active, they can win gains. So in the context of the theme of utopia, you've said a few times that we don't understand human cognition and interaction well enough to know what a cooperative society and economy would really look like. And you say it will require a lot of experimentation. So what areas strike you as the biggest unknowns here? All sorts of things. We don't know. I mean, take one of the some of the concrete proposals, very concrete proposals. Probably the most detailed ones, at least that I know of, are those of what's called Paracon, participatory economics. Michael Albert, Robert Hannell worked out very detailed programs. We don't know whether these can in fact function, whether people will accept them. Will people be willing to participate mm -hmm. in these? Only one way to find out, experimentation. Turns out that worker-managed production is extremely efficient. One of the major industries in in Europe, in Spain, Mondragon, huge industrial conglomerate, production, banks, housing, it's worker-owned, actually worker-managed. Of course, it exists within a broader capitalist society. So yeah. there's all kind of cutting corners necessarily. But sometimes these worker-owned enterprises are so successful 
that big capital moves in to try to buy them up. They offer the workers who own it pretty munificent pay if they just sell out their ownership shares so the big corporations can take it over. Then you guys can live in luxury for the rest of your lives. That's pretty tempting. I have some family friends who are part of a worker co-op and they retired and they they took a deal like that and they they got paid very well. But I think they they sort of saw what happened to the company after they sold it and they they realized the mistake they had made. Well, that's a question of how much class solidarity you can build up. Along the similar lines, if you were a researcher of humanity's future, Blue Sky, what would you say would be the questions that you would find the most interesting to pursue or explore when it comes to how we can figure out what a cooperative society would look like and what kinds of experiments we would have to do to figure out what that looks like? Well, the central area is workers' control of production, community control, popular control of communities. Should communities be run by the a community council, town hall, something like that, or by the rich people and the, the real estate developers, the bankers, and so on? Well, those are concrete questions all the time. They're very concrete. Now, should we have a mass transit system, for example? They're very concrete problems. These things come up all the time. Very real. I mean, take 2008. It's very interesting what happened then. Huge financial housing crisis. Part of it was that in the United States, the Obama administration pretty much nationalized the auto industry. They just took it over. Well, there were a couple of possibilities. One possibility was bail out the owners and managers, pay them off, return it to the same class of people, have them continue to produce SUVs and pick up trucks to cause traffic jams and destroy the environment. That was one possibility. Another possibility is hand it over to the workforce in the community, have them work on what we really need, like efficient mass transportation. That was a possibility too. If there had been a left, a real left, not fantasizing about Stalin, but a real activists left, they would have built up a popular movement to bring this to public attention, first of all, wasn't even discussed, turn it into an issue, then move to implement it. At the same time, move to cut back the fossil fuel use. fact of the matter is that the government could actually buy the fossil fuel industry at market rates and it wouldn't be much different from what the Treasury Department pours out to rescue investors who lost out during the pandemic. It's the same order of magnitude. Buy it out and turn it to sustainable energy. There are other things you can do, are being done, in fact. Work with the mine workers and the oil workers. It's being done. Take West Virginia, coal state, very reactionary. Now the activist work, uh, my friend and colleague, Robert Pollan, economist, co-author, he and his group at the University of Massachusetts have been working with uh, mine workers in West Virginia and Ohio and California. And they've actually gotten the United Mine Workers to accept a 
transition program, close down the coal mines, put the miners to work, having the mines and developing sustainable energy, better jobs, better community. Uh, the mine owners not going to take that, not going to accept it. In fact, their own legislator, Joe Manchin, right-wing Democrat, is, happens to be a big coal baron himself. He's strongly against it. But you're getting the working people to begin in the mines and the fossil fuel industry to recognize that for a better life for them and their communities, they have to move in this direction. It's not impossible. Organizing is possible. In Canada, this is a major issue because of its huge mining and exploitative industries. Last year, the oil and gas industry reaped a record four trillion US dollars windfall in net income. Yet, right now, the industry is not even reaching the very low operational emissions reductions targets it has set for itself. Many are running late, and most rely on dubious offsets. And they must establish clear near-term targets that chart the business transition to clean energy. Fossil fuel companies must also seize and desist influence peddling and legal threats designed to kneecap progress. Financial institutions everywhere must end lending, underwriting, and investments in coal anywhere, including new coal infrastructure, power plants, and mines. And they must commit to end financing and investment for exploration for new oil and gas fields and expansion of oil and gas reserves, investing instead in the just transition in the developing world. To those finance institutions already shifting from fossil fuels to renewables, I have a special message of hope and encouragement. Do not relent in the face of attacks on progress. You are doing the right thing. Keep going. As my discussion with civil society leaders today made clear, there is simply too much at stake for us to be silent. There is too much at risk for us to sit on the sidelines. Now must be the time for ambition and action, and I look forward to welcoming first movers and doers at the my climate action my climate ambition summit in September. So, in summary, we've heard from a youth climate activist in Libya, Nissa Beck, who told us that this oil exporting country ignored the urgent warnings its environment department gave it, and many of their employees hadn't been paid for two years. So many of those people swept out to sea by the flood could have been warned, evacuated, and the dams could have been maintained if the country wasn't in governmental chaos. Then we heard from science elder Sir David King that the buffer around Antarctica is melting. Urgent world cooperation is needed to prevent continued burning of coal, oil and gas, which will cause the land ice to slip. Now is the time for rapid diplomacy, he said, before COP28. Throughout the show, Antonio Gutierrez appeared. As the former Socialist Prime Minister of Portugal, he helped in the transition of East Timor from Indonesian occupation. So he is experienced in the long game, but his call on the fossil fuel barons is increasingly forceful. 
And then Noam Chomsky, who is in his 90s, also a veteran of the battles for independence in East Timor and Vietnam. His focus is not on United Nations or national government solutions. His trust is in grassroots organizing, worker co-ops like Mondragon and in class solidarity. All of these people are fighters. The journalists who brought them to you, Amy Goodman in USA, Nick Breeze in UK, and Drew Ojaje in Canada are also fighters. So as Antonio says, it's time to wake up and step up. Thousands will turn into millions as people mobilize around the world. The march last week to end fossil fuels in New York had 75,000 people. Next week in the Climate Action Show, we'll go to Narrabri, where the Pilliga Forest is under threat. The Gomoroi people want to be heard as they see Santos Gaswells desecrating their land. Here's a taste of next week's show with a song from the rally to stop Santos Gas in the Pilliga. My name is Vivian Langford. Goodbye and good luck. This is coal. Don't be afraid. The Don't treasure. be scared. It's coal. It's coal. It's coal. Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show. City and country united. We stand. Protect our water. Protect our land. Last one. Make a big city and country united. We stand. Protect our water. Protect our land. We gotta stop these corporate criminals polluting our native sky. We'll do bloody anything to stop their fracking demise. Are they ever gonna drill a hole again? Are they ever gonna drill a hole again? Can't stop the images I see before my eyes. We'll keep on fighting till Santos fracks off and dies. Are they ever gonna drill a hole again? 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 Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere every Monday at 4pm on your community radio 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. I'm from the Lakota Nation in the geographical center of North America that we call Turtle Island. And community radio is about your community, your heart. 
which 3CR Community Radio is, right here at 85.5 a.m. So it is digital, and I'm, I'm presuming you can you can go worldwide with it. Um, people are listening in America to you, so talk back, Australia, to the Earth. Peace with Earth. Thank you. Teokasen Ghost Horse. Community Radio is your love.